This special edition of Steady Habits is sponsored by the League of Women Voters. I've done a lot of events with the League over many years that I've covered Connecticut, moderating debates and panel discussions. They even gave me a pair of socks with the word vote on them, which I always wear on Election Day. As we mark the 100th anniversary of women's suffrage, I want to salute the League for their exceptional bipartisan work on behalf of voting rights. And if you want to do something to support that work, I'd suggest doing the thing that they want you to do. Go vote. Thanks so much. Here's our show. This is the Steady Habits 2020 Election Preview Special. It's where we take a look at life here in the land of Steady Habits, what works, what doesn't, and how to make it work just a bit better. I'm John Dankosky. Thanks so much for joining me. I don't know about you. I'm mostly excited because this election is almost here, which means it's almost over. It's been a really long election season. When I gathered last Wednesday with a few smart friends to talk about the election, we wanted to get away from the horse race and get into some of the enduring issues surrounding this election. Things like voting rights, systemic racism, the health of our democracy, and of course the impact of the pandemic on our political life. At the center of our conversation was the question, will bipartisan cooperation, even bipartisan civility of some sort, ever come back to American politics? Joining me for our conversation was Kalila Brown-Dean, Associate Professor of Political Science at Quinnipiac University. She's got an important new book called Identity Politics in the United States, and she has a brand new, very cool podcast on Connecticut Public called Disrupted. Liz Karantowicz is a veteran Republican strategist. She's working now on a new Republican political action committee called Fight for Connecticut. She's also a regular on WTNH's Capitol Report. And Mark Pazniokas is the Connecticut Mayor's Capital Bureau Chief. As you'll hear, we got some questions for our panelists from our live Zoom audience. More information in just a bit about how you can join these events yourself. But I started by asking all three of my guests what this election really means to them. And I put that question first to Dr. Kalila Brown-Dean. Wow, what a place to start. You know, I think this election is really about determining the health, the strength, and the function of American democracy. To see people waiting in line for three, four hours in places like North Carolina, to see people in Harris County, Texas, trying to get access to one drop-off box for early voting, and still hearing all of the conversations about the right to vote, what it means, what it doesn't mean, this is really about that future of understanding that in this country right now, in the middle of two pandemics, being COVID-19 and also the racial reckoning, what is the role of every person in this country in promoting democracy? And, and what I think is so important, John, two weeks out from the end of at least the voting period, not knowing who the winner will be, is that this is really a conversation that has to happen across partisan lines and across ideological orientation. I would agree with the professor. I think that the health of our nation's democracy is in the participation of the voting public. And I think what we're seeing in terms of um, people getting out to vote, using every uh, opportunity to participate in the process, standing in line to early vote, uh, voting uh, by mail in places where that is allowed, uh, utilizing the absentee ballots. Uh, I think the call to action across the, the spectrum for people participating in the process and getting out and voting 
is really important. And I think you've seen, remember, one of the things that hangs in the balance here across the country is redistricting. And you've seen nationally a real move towards focus on legislative races in places where uh, the uh, balance of power is up for grabs. Uh, Just recently, there's been, I think it was $12 million put into Texas uh, state house races to try and flip uh, that some of those seats from Republican to Democrat. So I think that the attention to down ballot races and almost this bottom up approach to voter turnout is is good. Uh, and I hope we see that here in Connecticut as well, where you really see this bottom up approach uh, to the way that we, uh, we we participate in this process because um, you know, all politics are local. I find this to be the most challenging election I've ever covered. Um, and it's challenging in part because one of the toughest things for a reporter is recognizing cultural shifts in the moment. And I, I think, you know, Liz and Kalila can identify with that as well. That That's kind of, you. sometimes you think you see it, you think you feel it, and then a little time goes by and you find out, no, that wasn't quite it. Uh, it was just indigestion. Um, trends in politics don't last the, the way they once did. You know, I can recall when the U.S. House of Representatives finally went Republican and after decades and decades. And this felt like a permanent realignment in American politics Uh, And it wasn't. And then when the Democrats regained the House, you thought, wow, this is another significant realignment. Well, it wasn't. So we've been doing we're 10 minutes into this and nobody has mentioned uh, Donald J. Trump. Uh, So I guess I will. You had to do it. We'll do so. Thanks, Paz. That's what we're all assessing is what is the Trump factor? How much of what we're seeing swirls around him and is generated by him and how much of that uh, is just symptomatic of something else you know uh, you know the professor talked about you know the racial reckoning but it feeds into what the president has been saying in tweeting and you know assessing that in the moment is not always the easiest thing uh for journalists so again my struggle is trying to separate out this moment from what is longer term and what really reflects changes in our in our culture and in our politics well i'm wondering kalila if you can pick up on that though this idea that we seem to be at this reckoning point And so much of it does focus around Donald Trump, the space he has created for some of the divisions that that we all know about in our country. But it's also fair to say that almost everything that you talked about in your opening statement, things that Liz talked about, things that Paz talked about, the real systematic problems in America, I mean, they predate Donald Trump pretty significantly. (laughs) And if, if he goes away after this election those things aren't necessarily magically going to fix themselves. I mean, h- how do you do you see that as we have an election that is so consumed by this Trump factor, but at the same time, it's dealing with issues that are frankly much bigger than even this man in the White House? You know, I feel about this election the way I did about the election of Barack Obama in 2008. 
there was no possibility that electing Barack Obama would enter us into this post-racial era the way that some people said. You cannot erase 200 years of political development with one election or one candidate. And there is a reason that Donald Trump became president. There is a reason why you hear people saying how much they still support him and being willing to risk their own health to go to a rally without mask. And that is about a belief system, that is about concerns about the country, concerns about the rule of government that surpass Donald Trump. And so the conversation that I've been having with my students is whatever happens on election day, right? People need to have a vote plan, but what is the post-election plan? What does it mean that you can have an organized militia threaten to kidnap the governor in a state because they don't like an executive order. And so that is bigger than any one person. It's bigger than any one candidate or party. And I think that if people hang all of their hopes on one candidate, again, whatever your candidate of choice, whoever that is, if you hang all of your hopes on that one person and you hang the future of democracy and the meaning of democracy on one person, then we have failed to really address the scope of the challenges that we face in this country. Liz, this idea of finding common ground on things that should be obvious common ground for people maybe is one way to get at some of what we're, we're talking about here. Can we find some common ground around just basic ways in which we want to act in society? And is that a starting point for a, a bigger, better political conversation? I, I would hope so. I mean, I would hope these are all things that we can agree on, right? I mean, my my idea of politics has has always been um, we disagree on how to get to the solution, not on what the problems are, right? Uh, and 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 can, you know that usually is based off of things that are a little bit easier to tackle uh, from a partisan perspective. But there's nothing partisan per se about the things the professor brings up, in my view. Um, I think mask wearing doesn't have to be partisan. Uh, it shouldn't be partisan. I think disagreeing with or, or re rebuking a militia trying to kidnap a, a, an elected official, these are all things that I, I don't hear much disagreement on among Republicans I talk to, not here in Connecticut or elsewhere. So to me, these are not political posturing points um, that I come in, in contact with. Um, and but, I think, yeah, but, but, but I, I wonder though, I mean, the, there is this, there is this chunk of the American electorate, which clearly is very much in support of some of the, the actions and the language of Donald Trump. And it's not a small number of people. It may not be the Republicans that, that you talk to in Connecticut or probably the Republicans you talk to, to nationwide, but it's a fairly substantial number of people in the country. Well, it's interesting because I've had this conversation with colleagues going back now four or five years of how did we end up in, in this situation? And I think that there, there's been a movement in the way that politics addresses issues. And uh, I think, frankly, the Democrat and the Republican parties, from an establishment perspective, have, have missed that opportunity to be a, a, a part of that conversation. And you see, I, I think that created a lane for Donald Trump in, in a way that while the 
traditional candidates were talking about issues and solutions and uh, finding common ground and on things. The president was talking about things that were much more emotionally resonant with people. And, and that drove people out that were not traditional Republican voters. So that, in effect, sort of changed the way the party communicated. And I think it's interesting you see some of that on the Democrat side with Bernie Sanders, right? There's that sort of that vein of emotional resonance uh, that establishment candidates had not been able to tap. And, and that we saw play out. So I'm interested to see how the electorate responds in a general election particularly in these swing states that get so much attention and how that changes outcomes, if at all. Were Democrats able to go out and communicate with Trump voters to say, you did not get the deliverables that you were promised, and so you need to take a different approach? That will be interesting to me. We're not getting that here in Connecticut. We're not getting swing state attention. Uh, we probably never will. But but so that's in a presidential election. That's, I think, will be very interesting to see how that plays out. Mark, you've been talking to a lot of Republicans, both these down ballot Republicans who are running for office, but also Republicans who, who may support them. And, you know, you just wrote a piece about this in the mirror that suggests not all these folks really necessarily want to see their lawn sign next to a Donald Trump lawn sign as, as they drive through town. No, they don't. And Republicans in the Northeast um, are in a, in, are in a tough spot. Um, you know, uh, a, you know, somebody like Paul Formica, who is a state senator, he is a former uh, first selectman. They tend to be very practical folks, and you know, he's not a he's not a Trump guy, but he's a he's a Republican. And he the criticism he gets on his Facebook page, you know, there was one day, literally, there was a comment that said, why don't you denounce the president? And the next comment was, why don't you have a lawn sign for the president on your lawn? And, and that's sort of the dilemma that Republicans in this area have. If they do publicly break with the president, they're going to lose a significant part of the base that is loyal to the president. I live in West Hartford, where there's a Republican candidate who's had some interesting Facebook uh, video ads, and he's tried to create some space between him and the president and Connecticut Republicans and, and national Republicans. And he did so in a respectful manner. He didn't, <clears throat> he didn't certainly condemn the president. He didn't even mention the president by name. But he, you know, he's had a, a tough time with some lo local Republicans. So, you know, I think we're in a spot where somebody like Liz, who part of her living was representing and helping advise Republicans in Connecticut, you know, they see they need to have Mr. Trump kind of exit the stage and then see what things look like. You know, Connecticut is gets caricatured as a blue state, and it is in federal races for president and Congress. But Connecticut really was kind of a purplish state for the General Assembly and gubernatorial elections. It's a very competitive landscape. And the thing you got to remember is, uh, you know, 2008 was a disaster for Republicans when Barack Obama won, and he was really the last um, president here to have coattail effects. And the, the Republicans were slammed. I mean, and, you know, earlier we were talking about trying to recognize what's a, a, a this tectonic shift versus a moment. 
And in 2008, you know, I, I mean, I was I, I was at Chris Shays' campaign headquarters and, and I was there when he ceased to become the last Republican member of Congress from New England. And, you know, remember, it was only they only won 30 Republicans only won 37 state house seats out of 151. And they were really irrelevant. But yet every two years, right through 2016, they climbed back. They did establish an identity separate from national Republicans. And it was, you know, social moderation, fiscal conservatism, criticizing the Democrats for their stewardship of the economy and uh, the budget. And, you know, 2016, it was a parody in the Senate and they came pretty damn close in the House. And then there was Mr. Trump. Do, do you, Liz, do you need to establish an, an entirely different type of Connecticut Republican Party that is just completely separate from the Donald Trump Republican Party in order for you to be successful? I think that's impossible to do. I think that if you, I, I'm not quite sure how you could achieve that, right? We don't live in a vacuum. This isn't, unfortunately, the Truman Show here, right? Like, you know, where I can just pick what happens. The, the, the fact is the Republicans in Connecticut, to Mark's point, have always been the way we are, social, liberal to moderate, uh, fiscal conservatives. Jody Rell was the first governor in the country to advocate and sign legislation that allowed for civil unions for, for uh, the LGBT community. So, I mean, Chris Shays, Nancy Johnson, Rob Simmons, these are, these are Connecticut Republicans. Uh, I think you look at our state legislature and you see those same kinds of Republicans. So the Connecticut Republican Party, it represents itself quite well. I think that particularly looking at 2018, as much as Donald Trump played a role, it was in energizing a Democrat base that, frankly, in Connecticut ha had not really been energized in a while, right? I mean, you had eight years of Dan Malloy, and there were a lot of Democrats who, who were not fond of, of their Democrat governor. They came out to vote for him. Um, but in the midterm years, in his midterm uh, years, um, he he did not fare well in the legislature, to Mark's point. Um, and, and you had... A, eight years of a Democrat president. And no matter what, the party in charge in Washington, midterms are very difficult. The only outlier of that in modern political history was uh, George W. Bush in 2002. So there are trends that, to Mark's point, maintain, right? There's there, the, the turnout numbers normalize out of year, in, in some out years. Um, and and those, those sort of habits are pretty cyclical and predictable. And what you saw in 2018 was very similar to what you saw in uh, in some of the years in, during President Obama's tenure where you had Republicans picking up seats in the legislature. What we weren't able to do was convert that into wins at the congressional or the statewide level. Hmm. That's, that could probably take up an entire hour-long podcast. <laughs> and I, may, I may come back to that that with you. I just want to actually turn, we've been talking about Republicans, Kalila, and talk about Democrats right now. There had been a sense for some time, up until recently, I think, in this very, very long, excruciatingly long election cycle, that there is a, a real divide between a kind of a Bernie- Elizabeth Warren wing of the party and a kind of Joe Biden wing of the party that is is more establishment and harkens back to to earlier times. Two questions. Do you see that still 
in evidence in the Democratic Party. And do you feel like the Democrats right now at the national level and really across the board are making a case for being about something that is not just not Trump? Language is important and labels are important because they often convey a particular perspective. But nationally, I can't tell you what it means to be a progressive because the definition of that varies based on the person who's responding to the question. Within Connecticut, that same sort of divide or murkiness is also apparent. Think about the police accountability bill that just passed and no one was happy with the outcome of that. You had a group of people who said, this is horrible. It is going to make the lives of law enforcement officers more dangerous because now it is giving a license to people to do whatever they want. You had people who identify as quote unquote progressive saying, this does not go far enough. I want a more hardline stance. And what we know is that governing is always about the art of compromise that you have to stand somewhere in order to get closer to what you want, realizing that you can never get everything. And I think that kind of conversation amongst Democrats nationally is also playing out in the state of Connecticut. To think about what we have seen in this state in the wake of COVID-19, the ways in which the disparities around COVID-19 contraction and also mortality has been heavily vested within black and brown communities across our state. What will that mean in connection to the national election? What will that mean if people don't have access to healthcare and to health coverage? Families who are already struggling in this sort of economic downturns, now worried about, will I be able to get the healthcare that I need? Will I be able to pay for the prescriptions that I need? Will my kid be able to go to school and have some sense of normalcy there to know that their safety is also protected? And I don't think there is enough of a conversation beyond party elite to actually connect on the ground. And that's something that we see nationally and also within the state across political parties. But I think in this year, where so many people who started this year feeling okay are now realizing in October that they're not as secure as they thought, when you see 40% of black owned businesses permanently closing, that raises the question of what the role of government should be beyond our sort of narrow definition of what a conservative approach is to government. It really is about all people deciding what's going to happen next. When Kalila talks about the police accountability bill, I, I was struck, I was reminded of something and it's easy to a degree to win an election. You know, you get the votes, it's over. It's easy to pass a bill and it's over. But what's hard is what happens after that. And what I'm talking about with the police accountability bill, um, there was a moment that I fear was lost. And that moment was for the first time in my career, seeing police officers stand shoulder to shoulder with protesters, not everywhere, but boy, in a lot of places in Connecticut. And then the police accountability bill became about um, uh, qualified immunity, which is a, it's a legalistic thing. I, I, I really fear that people on both sides have kind of misconstrued the importance of that. It was vital to the advocates to have 
um, a limit on qualified immunity for police officers. And it was vital for the police officers to fight that and maintain the status quo there. But to me, the success or failure of that police accountability measure is going to be really a cultural change. You know, it's going to be, will there be a difference in how police officers are trained? Um, uh, what, what will be the techniques on de-escalating? Um, you know, I, I think of the police accountability bill in the same way I think of the election. I, I'm wondering what happens when somebody wins, then what happens? Do, do we come back together? Is there some kind of healing? Uh, and again, I keep going back to kind of culture because I've seen ugliness this cycle that I have never seen before in my 40 years of, of being a reporter, most of it in Connecticut, of, of just seeing casual disrespect. You know, when I'm interviewing somebody in Ridgefield the other day and people are walking by giving this guy the finger um, or in Farmington Valley, where I was told uh, earlier today that, you know, uh, somebody was hanging a, a sex toy on the lawn sign of a woman running for the General Assembly. You know, this is a little different place that we're in. The level of anger is real. It's not just on social media. And so the question to me is, after this election, how will the leaders, how can the leaders of both parties turn down the temperature and kind of make things work again? And, and Liz, I'd like to actually put that to you. And, you know, Mark was talking about things that were happening in real life for the most part, but we've also seen these episodes of Zoom bombing uh, a Johanna Hayes event, uh, a, a first congressional district debate the other night. It happened to a candidate in Delaware. This, this stuff is happening all the time. And I, I don't know, Liz, we, we say this every single cycle. It's gotten uglier than it's ever gotten before, but it's really gotten uglier than it's ever gotten before this year. Well, I think some of that, to Mark's point, is, is really cultural. Um, I think I, I talk with candidates and, and uh, former elected officials all the time. Uh, I know I have, have been a victim of, of this uh, constantly. And I think we have keyboard warriors who feel like there is a fair amount of distance between them and the person they are attacking. And that empowers people to say and do things they would not do in person. And that is not good for society. That's not good for humanity. That, that's not good for politics. Uh, but mostly, just as people, we need to do better. And so I think I have this conversation. I'll invoke his name. I'm sure he won't mind. I, I have this conversation with John McKinney often. And we talk about some of the things that he went through after uh, the bill, um, the, the gun bill that they passed after the tragedy at Sandy Hook um, and, and some of the things that were said and done to him. Um, and we talk about his dad, who uh, some of you may know was a member of Congress a, a very long time ago. And some of the horrible things that were said uh, to him and about him and, and messages received then and, and talking with members of, of Congress and elected officials on all sides of the aisle, this is something that people, it's just sort of par for the course, comes with the territory, unfortunately. But I do think that social media in particular has empowered people in a way that there is a distance between them and the person that they are attacking in a way that they feel there's that it's okay. 
Um, and that it is not okay. But but and how mu how much of it is how much of it is emboldened by the the guy who's in the White House right now? I mean, there's there's no one who does this in terms of name calling, baseless accusations, saying things that that aren't true about people, spreading conspiracy theories. The man in the White House does that more than almost anybody in America, and he sets a, a bit of a tone. I mean, does some of that change, Liz, if, if, if the resident of the White House changes? Well, I sure hope it changes, period. If the president gets reelected, that has to change. If, if but he won't the change. If he's not reelected, it, it, has, it has to change. I think that the president has done it in a, a way that absolutely has added to the problem, not, uh, not made the problem go away. Um, and he bears a lot of responsibility for that. But I have seen as well, it's sort of emboldened a bipartisan call to action where the rules of decorum that existed maybe when Nancy Johnson was a member of Congress uh, no longer exists. And I do think a lot of that is that we can just pound something out on Twitter and feel good about ourselves and just kind of drop the mic and walk away. And, and that's a bipartisan problem. Some of the things that I've seen Democrats say on Twitter very much match what what the president and Republicans say. As the leader of the free world, he should do better. Mm. Hey, Kalila? Yeah, I, I think that there's a difference between individual responsibility and institutional accountability here. And, you know, I interviewed the widow of Congressman Elijah Cummings, and she talked about what it meant that her husband was literally fighting for his life and being attacked not only by the president, but by his enablers and his supporters who were wishing death upon him as he was in a fight for his life and still this commitment to democracy. She talked about him having to defend his friendship with Mark Meadows, who at the time was Congressman Mark Meadows, not chief of staff, and making it clear that we are friends. Yes, I'm a part of this party, but we are people. And so that institutional design piece that I think is so important here, Liz, is that there was a break that happened long before Twitter became the cesspool. And that is decision-making by people like Newt Gingrich as Speaker of the House to say, those bipartisan social gatherings we used to have, we're not going to do that. That idea that to go to the state of the union of this country that we all love and that we all contribute to, you have to be with your party over here, I'm going to be with my party over here, and we're going to send a clear signal that bipartisanship is viewed as weakness. So that flows in many ways that we see happening across the era, which makes it possible to have a debate, a presidential debate, and you can't hear any policy as 210,000 Americans have lost their lives. And instead we have to figure out how to mute a microphone in order to get substance. That shouldn't be acceptable to anyone, regardless of party. And the concern that I have to Mark's point you know, we're going to head into a gubernatorial election in our state. What should we be stealing ourselves for and preparing for in this state as we approach that election? The nastiness, the vitriol, the seeming inability or unwillingness to understand that there are common challenges facing our state, that regardless of how you feel, 
transportation is an issue, regardless of how you feel, access to public education, support for small businesses. Can we address those challenges head on without getting into some schoolyard taunts that I wouldn't accept from my kid or my students? And yet we not only accept it from our elected officials, we reward them by paying their salaries to continue doing it. It's like being in an abusive relationship where you don't know why you keep going back, but you go back because it's familiar and there's some kind of security and familiarity. Professor, you you are absolutely right in terms of this has been going on for a long time. And I think it does coincide, and Mark will get a chuckle out of this. I think a lot of it coincides with some of the changes in campaign finance law, where the way in which campaigns are run and financed change significantly. And so everything had to become partisan because everybody had to get their chance to go raise the money they needed to raise and differentiate themselves. Um, And so I think what you're talking about in terms of the way that Gingrich kind of shifted things to a more partisan, I think that coincided with some significant changes in campaign finance law that changed like entirely the way that Congress behaves. Here's where I'll, where I'll say, I think Connecticut, for how bro- broken Washington is, and probably unfortunately will be for some time, I am so proud of the way that Connecticut uh, leaders have operated in very difficult spaces, achieving some really monumental outcomes over the course of the last 10 years, let's say, but particularly the last six years. Um, when you look at the things that they tackled, things they disagreed on, on on completely opposite sides, they were able to find that common ground. They were able to come together. And to your point earlier, they didn't all agree with the outcome. But boy, did they do some really big things. And one of the things we haven't talked about is the fact that we've got three legislative leaders who are retiring this year. And these are this group of leaders uh, Themis Claritus, House Republican leader, Len Fasano, Senate Republican leader, uh, Senator Looney, uh, Democrat president, uh, and Joe Arasimo is the speaker. Uh, so Senator Looney is staying around, but the other three, this group of people have achieved some really big things. And so I don't expect to see the kind of uh, thing we're seeing at the federal level. You know where you're more likely to see that? In a Republican primary. <laughs> <laughs> or a Democrat primary, if there is one. Mm. I think the internal politics will be much more feisty and bitter uh, than we'll see in a general election because Connecticut voters do not tolerate that and have not tolerated that uh, here in Connecticut. Do they tolerate it at the national level because it's part of, unfortunately, how broken Washington is? Yes. But I think here in Connecticut, we have a reason to be very proud of the way that the leaders of both parties have comported themselves uh, during their tenure in the legislature and what that's done for our state. Mark, I'm wondering if you can pick up on that a little bit. Our friend Diane Smith wants wants us to dive into the Connecticut legislature and maybe some, some interesting races that are there. As Liz points out, there's going to be changes in leadership, certainly. It's fairly clear that the Connecticut legislature isn't isn't changing from Democrat to Republican this time around. But what should we be watching for on election night? Uh, so depending on how big the blue wave is, I, I mean, if there truly is this tidal wave, 
then doing granular analysis district by district would be less important. Um, but, you know, so a couple of things to think about. Um, in the state Senate, we had a whole bunch of close races last time. There were, I think it's nine senators who won with no more than 52% of the vote. Um, one of the things that I'm struck by this year is a huge number of rematches. Uh, you have people who came close uh, in 2018. And in a lot of ways, this election is a continuation of 2018. You know, the, uh, the Democratic base was energized by the president, uh, by the Women's March, by subsequent events on, um, on police brutality. Um, it, it all seems to be part of, of really one giant campaign since 2018. And there are a lot of candidates trying to, you know, write the finale to a story that they opened up in 2018. So that's something to look for is, again, all the rematches. And some were in a very close uh, races. You know, there's a, a Democratic state rep, uh, Maria Horn, up towards your way, uh, John in Northwest Connecticut, and she unseated uh, uh, kind of a moderate Republican named Brian Oler. And there was a recount. That's how close it was. Well, Brian Oler is running again, again against Maria Horn. So, you know, that's something that'll be on my list election night. I, I just want to point out that if you drive through the, the beautiful scenic town of Norfolk, which is, which is lovely this time of year with the, the changing leaves, there is a, an Oler or Horn sign in every single yard save for one there's um folks who've decided to put out rick astley signs rick astley of course the 1980s singer famous for he's never gonna give you up he's never gonna let you down he's never gonna never turn gonna around and desert goodbye. you he's never gonna make you cry never gonna say goodbye um so i just i i I'm love driving you're through. Not singing i'm sad you're not singing <laughs> I've driven through town several times now in the last couple of days looking for the Rick Astley signs amid the, the uh, Oler and, and Horn signs. I apologize for, for interrupting your astute political analysis for that anecdote, but I just thought that it was important and, and maybe we'll sing later on in the program. But, you know, and one of the other things to keep in mind is the people who are most vulnerable in either party, they tend to be in the districts or swing districts. So these tend to be the people who are a little bit closer to the center, you know, the Democrat be left of center, but not that far away from the center. And, and that is one of the, the things that people in both parties will quietly, if not privately bemoan is who on the other side they might beat because, you know, one of the little secrets, uh, it's not a secret to, to Liz or Kalila or you is, you know, Ned Lamont doesn't much want to see 26 Democrats elected to the state Senate on November 3rd, you know, 23, I mean, 22 would be fine, which I have now. He doesn't want to lose anything, but the more you have, the more complicated his life gets, the more complicated Marty Looney's life gets because it becomes harder to manage a caucus when you have, uh, you know, in the case of the Senate, anything above 18, you know, is extra. And, you know, people get to do their own thing. And you get a lot of pressures, you know. Um, when the Republicans got greater numbers, they had a 
fairly vocal group of of people far more conservative than the you know the bulk of the Republican caucus. And Larry Cafaro before Themis Clardis had to deal with that, and then Themis had to deal with that. And of course, life got simpler for Themis when their numbers went down. So you know, I'm not sure she would agree with that. <laughs> well, no, you're right. That's one of the hard things about these big wave elections. It's a little bit hard to kind of maintain that balance, and particularly this year, I don't think we're going to see much of a balance on November third. I want to get to a couple of questions that people are, are putting in here. Mark Gilbert has uh, has written a, a question that I, I love, and it's fairly detailed for a, a an event like this, but I'll, I'll read it. It says, given the intersection of this pandemic, struggling economy, disintegration of social support systems, and racial injustice exposed beyond argument, what are the issues you think we should first pursue that will have the best chance of finding success in Connecticut? What specific structural changes do you think need immediate attention? Wow. It's a big question. And and because it's such a big question, I want to put it to you, Kalila Brandy. Um, <laughs> um, Let the professor handle that one. But, but I, I was just thinking that actually my students have an exam next week. So Mark, <laughs> if you could come write an exam question for me or just let me capture this one, I'll be sure to give you um, full credit for that. Thank you so much. I, I like he, he even has A and B. It's almost like, you know, yeah. you just C and D, like none of the above. I think um, Mark's an educator. I love it. But, but I mean, well, to, to that point, I mean, but he's asking, I think, a very important question. I mean, when we, when we think about a time like this, I mean, what are the things that we actually need to try to fix? And what are the things that, that if we were to try to fix them, they would actually have some have some resonance right now. I mean, that, that that is a hard thing to think about because there's so much in this world that seems so very, very broken. And often it feels like those two things are in conflict with one another, what we should be doing and what we can do in an expedient way. Based on the first part of the question, I am very laser focused about the investments that we are making in young people in our state. One of the things that COVID-19 revealed is the fractures in our system of public education across our state. So that some people thought that, you know, well, let's keep people safe by moving to Zoom or moving to Google Classroom. That sounds great, but that requires that you have stable, consistent internet access in your home. It requires that you have the equipment that you will need in order to engage. It also assumes that there's a parent who can be there with you to help walk you through that. And we also realized this year that unfortunately for many children, home is not a safe place for them to be. And so it raises these broader questions about what are the investments and commitments we need to make into education that will require a structural change when it comes to funding, when it comes to the types of opportunities that young people have. And John, I think that feeds into every other policy area and challenge that we are facing in Connecticut. You want to have a a police force and a law enforcement system that looks like the community that it protects and looks like the community that it serves. Well, you have to cultivate a pipeline early on so that people see public safety as a career that they want to be a part of, or that if there are changes that they want to to make, they need to be a part of that and set up very early on to do that. So what are the kinds of vocational training programs we have in our schools to do that? How are we pursuing entrepreneurship for young people so that they can create the small businesses that will drive the economy of our state? 
And at a very basic level, it's hard for a kid to pay attention in a virtual classroom when they are uncertain about whether their family will be able to stay in their home the next month or the month after that, or if going back to school in person is better for their social emotional health, but then puts another family member at risk because we are now seeing an increase in multi-generational family units in order to consolidate costs. So I think that's where we need to focus. What are the opportunities we need to create for young people? And most importantly, how do we listen to what young people are saying? If all of us as adults are feeling the stress and the anxiety and the heaviness of this year, whether it's election or COVID or racial reckonings, then certainly young people are feeling it magnified. Well, I, I want to echo what the professor said in terms of the what we have, what has been exposed, right? I mean, one in four Connecticut uh, students lost learning during the pandemic for all of the reasons the professor mentions, right? I mean, this was this has been as a working parent with two young kids, uh, this has been very difficult for everybody. Um, and so I think that Connecticut started this in a space where we have one of the, have consistently had one of the worst achievement gaps in the country. And there is just no excuse for that. Um, and I think what I would love to see again is, is having a more bipartisan dialogue about the solutions. Because to your point, Mark, about some of the unsexy things that were in that 2017 budget um, that have made a fundamental structural change in the way that we govern as a state. I think if we can get those kinds of outcomes on the issues uh, that Mark is talking about, boy, will we really fundamentally change things here, right? I mean, we need a better opportunities for people in education. Uh, we need a, a better way to provide support uh, an opportunity to the business community, particularly small businesses who have been so disadvantaged by what's happened during the pandemic. So um, I think that all of it needs to be fixed. And, and I think it all works together. You can't have a strong economy if you don't have an educated population. Uh, you can't employ people who are not ready for the workforce. Um, and so you, you really can't just pick one of them as a priority. You really have to uh, tackle all of them. Um, and I think we are in a better position to tackle these things because of the bipartisan that work that was done uh, in, in previous budget cycles that put us in a position to where we are financially stronger than we would otherwise be. Um, and again, I would say the call to action here is for the new group of bipartisan leaders uh, to get their heads together and, and work to tackle these problems because we know we can fix them if they work together. Mark? The least sexy things that's going on right now is this Governor Lamont's administration before the pandemic um, started paying some real attention to, again, the, the really boring area of workforce development. And this, this sort of builds on what Kalila was talking about, what's going on in the schools. And, you know, Governor Malloy sort of started the effort to trying to connect job training to actual jobs. And this is, you know, this is something that's hugely important because, you know, you have to remember in Connecticut that 40% of the state is really vulnerable, that they're either, they're either under the poverty level or they are in, they're on the bubble, you know, um, 
they, they do, don't have enough money in the bank to deal with any an unexpected expense of like more than four or five hundred bucks. And the pandemic has been this huge stress test about that. But before the pandemic, you know, people would be surprised to, to learn that one of Connecticut's problems in being slow and growing jobs is that there were like 10,000 manufacturing jobs going wanting. You know, these were jobs that, that pay a middle-class uh, salary. And, you know, so before the pandemic, you know, I mean, I was working on a story then and I've, I'm now revisiting it, updating it, but about the extent to which Connecticut is preparing people for the jobs that are there and also the extent to which they are reaching down into the element of the workforce that, and I don't say this to put anybody down, but it's sort of the marginal end. It's the people who are doing maybe two part-time jobs to, to eke out a living, but they don't have benefits. Um, you know, maybe they're at minimum wage or slightly above minimum wage. And that's a big chunk of Connecticut that's vulnerable. So this doesn't require a lot of legislative action, but it would be nice if people would wake up to this issue and get behind uh, to do the hard work of making sure that we take uh, these job training programs, some of which are very successful, they're very good at actually placing people and knitting it together into a system that that works. And, mm. you know, that's been something that's, you know, sort of went on the back burner during the pandemic, but they're they're starting to step that up again. But that's going to be one of the things that will determine if Connecticut really turns the corner in a way that has any sustainability, not just for the well to do, but for for how to bring more people into the middle class and give them a stable uh, earning. We, we just have a, a couple minutes left and I, I wanna ask Kalila Brandine quickly about something that I probably heard from voters as I've, I've done some national radio programs over the course of the last several months. I've, I've talked to pollster Stan Greenberg on my, on my podcast who talks to you know, uh, voters who say that they are, um, they're unsure of who they're voting for, which I never really believe. Um, and everyone, everyone who everyone talks to says that healthcare is the thing that is most on people's minds because we've never fixed the problem of providing healthcare in America to to people. We've maybe given more people health insurance than they had before, but that hasn't solved the problem. And then as we go through a health pandemic, it really comes to the forefront that our healthcare system is is broken. Is is healthcare? the thing to you, Kalila Brandine, that that's most on the table right now in this election or that needs to be addressed nationwide more than anything else? I'm always hesitant to say the issue, but yeah. I think it is definitely in the top two. And here's why. Healthcare, as you said, has to be more than just health insurance and health coverage. Care also includes looking at total holistic health and wellness. It looks at prevention. It looks at access that people have access to care, access to uh, counseling and behavioral health services that can help people make it through these kinds of challenging times. And I think that in a system and in a place 
where you have people who had good jobs, who, you know, did all the things they were supposed to do, and were still finding a difficult time getting access to testing or getting access to treatment. And as we know from cases here in Connecticut, people who went to get treatment and were turned away and sadly lost their lives because of that. That is something that, again, I don't think we should politicize because people are struggling in Montana just as they are struggling in the Commonwealth of Kentucky to keep themselves healthy and safe. And on the cusp of a major vote to appoint someone to the United States Supreme Court and the implications of that for the very fragile measures that we do have in place to at least create some kind of coverage and access, this issue is not going away. That's Dr. Kalila Brown-Dean, Associate Professor of Political Science at Quinnipiac University, Republican strategist Liz Karantowicz, and Mark Pazniokas, the Connecticut Mirror's Capitol Bureau Chief. We talked last Wednesday for a special election preview event. If you'd like to join some of our future Zoom events, become a member of the Connecticut Mirror. Just go to our website and click that Donate button. Your contribution helps to support the great journalism the Mirror is doing. You can also sign up for our newsletters there so you know when these events are happening. Our next event is coming up this week, and I encourage you to sign up, especially if you care about the future of journalism. Jennifer McFadden of Yale School of Management will moderate a conversation with John Thornton of the American Journalism Project and Bruce Putterman of the Connecticut Mirror. It's Wednesday, October 28th, 5.30 p.m. Thornton's going to be talking about how local journalism is being reimagined and why he's raised some $50 million to invest in local journalism. Hope you can join us for that. You can go to ctmirror.org slash events. While you're there, please subscribe to our podcast, Steady Habits, if you haven't already. Coming up on tomorrow's show, it's part two of our economic recovery series. Last week, we have the story of how Connecticut's theater industry is struggling through the COVID pandemic. Listen tomorrow to hear how the restaurant industry is faring. Thanks so much to Kyle Constable, Beth Hamilton, Bruce Potterman, and Jess Friedman. Steady Beats are provided by George Mastrianis and Dave Swanson at Legend Studios in Avon, Connecticut. I'm John Dankosky. And we'll talk to you soon.